Hello and welcome to Publish Me, a monthly podcast series from the AS21 Podcast Network, exploring the publishing process of the fantasy epic, The Will of the Magi. I'm your host, Keith F. Shufflin, publisher of AS21 Media, and joining me as always is... Hello everyone, this is Paul Dickinson Russell, the author of The Will of the Magi. I hope your 2018 is going off well. And I'm Rhonda Gaynor, design consultant for AS21 Media, and... My 2018 is off to a, a rolling start, so I hope you guys are having as much fun as I am so far. Yeah, so far. <laughs> yeah, this, is feb- <laughs> this is February 2018 and the third anniversary of the podcast. Yay! <gasps> Three long years! <laughs> Yay! Yes. I'm so sorry. It's okay. It's all my fault. It's okay. Chapter 35 today, we'll be discussing the birth of digital publishing. We'll have a guest coming on in a few minutes, but first we want to kind of go over what's been happening. Uh, we And of course, some unfortunate news that we want to discuss. But first of all, so Rana, you you hinted at things are rolling. How, how are things? How is your 2018 so far? Um, so I'm trying to make a goal of selling my artwork at at least, or no, sell my artwork at like one convention per month, basically. And I'm teaming up with a friend of mine named Kat Branowitz, who is a really cool comic book artist and specializes in robot monks and space westerns. And so we're sharing tables at a lot of these conventions. So I've booked at least like six so far. And I'm really excited about those. I'm going to the Game Developers Conference as a conference associate in March. And, you know, that's like a hard program to get into. So I'm excited to do that. I've already booked my flight and hotel. I finished the coloring book that I was doing. And I'm so happy to be done with it. Yay. <laughs> and- <laughs> And I'm starting a new project. I'm illustrating an entire board game. So that'll be super fun. That's fantastic. Oh, nice. Congratulations. Yeah, my, my th- I decided my <laughs> theme song this past week was now about to break by Third Eye Blind. So, I, I mean, a lot of things got set up. I'm hoping a lot of them are about to break. So, <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> Paul, how's your 2018 going Dangerous so by Luck Boy. <laughs> <laughs> 2018's been... Rocky. <laughs> in the personal life, I had a lot of funerals to go to last year, and this year started off with one of those. But everything's been falling into place lately. It's just been wonderful. And I've finally gotten something that's going to help my writing and my creativity and allow my ADHD to fully expand itself. <laughs> I bought my- <laughs> I've bought myself two additional screens to plug into my laptop. If anyone sees my Facebook post, I'll have seen these things. I saw your Facebook post. It looks awesome. I love it. And so I've been, you know, I've been working on all these little projects, not, you know, all of, a lot of them writing related, but it, I can finally have, you know, research on one thing, plot and character development on another thing, and the actual thing I'm working on in front of me, no more having to find notes or write things down, or deal with any of that crap. Just moving all my awesome. screens around. It works so well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it took me like three years to finally invest in an external monitor of my own, and I'm so happy that I did. 
Like, how do you how do you do anything with less than two monitors? The thing yeah. that annoyed me though was an hour after I, I posted this, I saw in one of the writing groups I'm in. This guy set up and he has four screens, <laughs> and, he, and you know because. One's for plot and character development, one's for writing, one's for his research, and the other one has a camera attached to it so he can Skype people in for discussions and all those kind of things and consultations. I'm like, really? <laughs> You're showing me up, sir. I don't like this. <laughs> <laughs> don't do And then he, he talks about like the 16 programs he has running on all these computers that all are designed oh, to help him write. Lord. I'm like, if you need more than words and all this stuff, it's too much. Ah. See, I, I have <laughs> dual monitors going at work. All of us do in my office because we need to. Because when we're checking in books and processing and everything, our programs that we use take up too much of a screen for us to get by with just one monitor. But at home, I I just do a single screen on my laptop. Although one, I do have an external monitor I could hook up to if I really need the more space. But I will say, like, each of these screens only cost me about $115, $120 each. And then I got an extra seven or eight bucks for four-year warranties. So, yeah, these things are wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I can still do, like, if I wanted to really hook up more, I could probably hook up, like, three or four more. I don't need to do that, so I'm just not going to worry about it. But I, I could if I wanted to. <laughs> So, like I said, this is Chapter 35 of the Publish Me Podcast, The Birth of Digital Publishing. You can subscribe and listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, TuneIn, and our home on the web, audio.as31.com. We're hosted by Podomatic. You can reach us on Facebook, facebook.com slash publishpodcast, on Twitter at publishpodcast, and email us, publishpodcast at as21.com. Now, I wanted to take a moment for us to reflect. This past week, we lost a legend. More specifically, it's been, well, it's actually, as of recording this, it's now been two weeks. From the New York Times on January 23rd, Ursula K. Le Guin, acclaimed for her fantasy fiction, is dead at 88. Le Guin, the immensely popular author who brought literary depth and a tough-minded feminist sensibility to science fiction and fantasy with books like The Left Hand of Darkness and the Earthsea series, died on Monday at her home in Portland, Oregon. I had been meaning to read her for a while, and finally got around to reading The Wizards of Earthsea this past week. And I just started uh, Planet of Exile yesterday. So I'm uh, you know, chugging right along, going through across her various collections. Now, Paul, I'm guessing you've read quite a bit of her. I've read most of the Earthsea works. I'm actually going through her uh, Wikipedia here, just to remind myself, you know, what what of hers I've read. I'm awful at remembering authors, so it's you know, it's one of those curses. But you know, I've read most of the Earthsea. I've I've read some of the Hanish uh, series. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but that's how I pronounce it. Compass Rose, I've read, and so I mean, it's just more stuff I have to read. But everything she wrote, I really, really enjoyed. So, like, I've read a bunch of her stuff, and I've truly enjoyed it. Very well written, wonderful prose. If you want to define what the science fiction fantasy genres are about, Le Guin is one of the authors who you have to put up there. You know, right. it's like, 
you want to understand what these things are about, she's who you got to go with. Absolutely. Uh, Rana, have you read any of her work? Sad to say, I have not. I have been told about the Earthsea series before, and I all I know about it is that there was a terrible movie made of it. Yeah, I saw that when it came out, and yeah, I it didn't make it didn't make me want to read it. So, which <laughs> so, is unfortunate. Definitely gonna have to jump on that uh, this year. Maybe while I'm drawing, I'll have some audiobooks. If you have any audiobook recommendations? Please tell me. Oh, and also. Should I start with Earthsea, or is there another book of hers that is good to start with, in your opinion, Paul? I started with The Wizard of Earthsea, but yeah, Paul. Yeah, you know, I would say start with The Wizard of Earthsea, because that's the very first in the Earthsea series, so just start there, work your way through. I would also say, you know, maybe The Eye of the Heron would be good, The Compass Rose is good, wherever you want. I mean, I personally, I enjoy the Earthsea stuff, I mean, that, that kind of fancy is always, you know, makes me happy, so... I recommend the Wizard of Earthsea top choice. After that, wherever you feel like going. Okay. I definitely, you know, from when reading Wizard of Earthsea this week, and of course, I read all but one of the Doom books last year. So yes. this year, this year's challenge for me is the Earthsea books. And I've read Tolkien in the past. I read the entire Narnian series over last year and the end of the previous year. So I've definitely been very big a fan of the series of great fantasy writers. And, of course, the thing those three series have in common, they're all written by white men. So this <laughs> is definitely a different perspective with style and perspective and the way she approaches certain characters. I mean, the characters are a bit richer, a bit more depth and smarter, I definitely say. There's less need to resort to action less need to resort to battle mm -hmm. and so I, i've definitely enjoyed just the short bit of her that i've read so far so so that's my main challenge this year is probably get through the entire Earthsea series it'll and be so, well yeah. worth it when you do yeah i'm trying to read 100 books this year as of this beginning of february i'm at 14 so nice. that's a good start <laughs> that's a very good start that's a good start yeah well, it helps when I count the books I read by children at night. So. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, they count. Yeah, absolutely. Well, some of them are chapbooks that, you know, t have taken several weeks to get through. And some are, you know, quick reads. But, yeah. and But then, of course, some of the audiobooks I've read uh, are quick reads as well. So This episode is sponsored by... Hey, listeners, we need your help. We here at AS21 want to know what you think about your favorite podcasts on our network. Like what you're hearing? Want to hear more? Want to hear less? Who would win a fight, Keith or Silby? Visit your favorite podcast page or surveys.as21.com anytime before February 28th, and you'll get a coupon for 21% off everything in the AS21 market. Again, that's surveys.as21.com. Okay, so our guest has been waiting long enough. Let's we'll bring her on. I'm not going to say her name just yet because it is a bit of a surprise. Oh boy! Our guest tonight will be talking about the birth of digital publishing. This chapter 35 of the Publishing Podcast. Our guest tonight finished a long career at the U.S. Federal Reserve in 2010, and now consults on strategic organizational improvement. 
At the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, she spent most of her time in the support function of the Economic Research Group. From the mid-1980s to early 90s, she was responsible for the graphics and production staff, which produced, among other work, the flagship publication of the FRBNY, the Quarter Review in Economics and Monetary Policy. Barbara Dickinson oversaw the conversion from manual publication layout to an automated desktop publishing system, and later led the team that developed and implemented the first internet site for the FRBNY. From editing her high school newspaper in the 1960s to helping her son, Paul Dickinson Russell, self-publish his first book of collected works, to overseeing the second edition of a self-help book for a dear friend and colleague forthcoming, Barbara has an enduring fondness for the publishing industry. Welcome to the Publish Me Podcast, Barbara Dickinson. Thanks, Thank you, Paul. This is what I get. <laughs> I have a feeling. You love plots and conspiracies. Uh, I blame the lizard people. <laughs> Uh, darn government stealing our jibs. Uh, <laughs> it was actually incredibly easy to keep this secret. I just had to ignore the one time you asked me who our guest was. <laughs> I asked one time, I was like, okay, I don't get an answer. Okay. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> Wait. Now I'm going to start getting suspicious every single time you stop telling me you don't tell me. You only have one mother. <laughs> uh-huh. I can fix that. <laughs> Barbara, welcome. Hey. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And I want to say hi to Rana. I see she's here. Hi, Rana. Hi. How you doing? Good, thank you. How are you? Doing pretty well so far. Catching up with the laughter, huh? <laughs> It's like, oh, next month it'll be Paul's father, and then his therapist, and then his postman. <laughs> oh, don't forget his brother. He'd make a great guest. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> so this, so the podcast would essentially turn into Paul Dickinson Russell, this is your life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. My life's not that interesting, damn it. <laughs> no, don't worry, I'll throw a curveball. Yeah, Harry. I'll throw a curveball. I'll get my dad on next month. Oh, good. That'll work. Yeah. All right. So, so Barbara, what were we discussing again? So, Barbara, you were there at the format when desktop publishing became the thing, the thing that ended up launching what is now known as the digital publishing industry. That is correct. I have to admit it. I remember laying out the quarterly review of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York on these great big pieces of paper with pencils and rulers. And I confess that wasn't my job, but I had to oversee the area that did that. And boy, were they glad when they got to convert from that method. So I'm not at all familiar with the publishing industry and like what the actual technical process is of taking a manuscript and turning it into a book. So like, how does it actually work? So I'm going to dig back into memories that go back to the mid-1980s. Some of you I know were not yet born because I was there. Um, (laughs) 
what I what I remember best was a field trip we took one time to go over to the actual printer, the printing house in Lower Manhattan, and see them take our laid out sheets and put them on these giant sheets of paper and run them through the printing press. And there was a a formula, a way to figure out if you laid, I think it was 16 pages of the journal out on one giant sheet of paper, and then it got folded and cut by the machine. You had to know which page was going to wind up in which position. So it wasn't just page one through 16, according to a four by four grid, not at all. It was, first of all, two-sided. And second of all, you know, it could be page one and page 17 next to each other. However, that was going to come out. People that did that work know better than me. But I remember being quite amazed at how they did that. And they showed us the inking process and they showed us the binding process. The journal that I knew the best was the quarterly review. The journal they produce now, the Economic Policy Review, is about the same size journal. But I do remember very clearly we went from saddle stitching to glued bindings at some point. And those things still happen in printing uh, companies. So the physical book is, I say this for Paul especially, by no means dead. The book you and I published together was saddle stitched, I believe, right? That's right. Saddle stitching is is stapling. Yeah. Yeah. Little Damon. And uh, the glued binding is just it. It depended on how thick the book got. Right. I think was one of the criteria. Okay. Yeah, in the industry, glued binding is called perfect binding now. That's right. Perfect. Thank you. So you'll all be filling in my memory gaps. No problem. (laughs) She has a lot of those. We blame you, Paul. <laughs> be, nice. be nice. I'm a guest tonight, not a mother. Okay. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, the process you just described sounds a lot like a handmade books that I made in high school. And full disclosure, I work as a production assistant at a printing company right now. It's a very small company. And we have a saddle stitching machine and a perfect binding machine. And we do indeed, you know, figure out how big the book is and then either saddle or perfect bind it, depending on the size. That our saddle stitching machine is very ornery, and I have to like kick it a lot. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's <laughs> I, Rana. I can't thank you enough. I'm, I'm I got it right. Um, the probably the difference is the machines that we were looking at and and touring were huge, great big warehouse sized rooms because these were financial publishers in the financial district of New York City. And so they were doing printing for all the big banks, you know, who put out their banking and finance publications. But to get back to the question about why digital publishing was such a boon was that we lived in a world where there had to be a lot of revisions right up to the last minute and sometimes past the last minute. Because what we were publishing had the power to move markets to make people change their behavior in the financial world, the economic opinions of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, even in this relatively slow-to-publish journal, could still make a big difference. 
And I remember many times the Board of Governors in Washington making a comment that meant that text had to change or a graph had to change. I was just saying, how did, how did you like make those changes back before digital publishing? You could have to literally stop the presses, but <laughs> we, we, we did it. You would have to change the page that had been provided to the printer. We provided the text to the printer, but they typeset it for us. And once digital publishing came along, we were doing the typesetting ourselves. Yeah, I could tell you from my own experience, I remember doing very basic publishing in middle school and high school and then really getting into desktop publishing in high school with Adobe PageMaker, which doesn't exist anymore. And then I was doing my own stuff on Microsoft Publisher. Sorry, what does desktop publishing actually mean? Uh, that's when you're using your computer desktop to publish things. Ew. Yes. Rana, it's the transfer of the typesetting responsibility from the print shop to the desktop. Okay. See, we, gotcha. provided, we provided typed up pages, and then the printer did the typesetting. But once we got the typesetting piece of desktop publishing on our desktops, we chose the font, we did the layout, we made it look the way it was going to look in the printed book. And then we transmitted that electronically to the printer, and they produced it on the page. But, I mean, we had to set where all the charts were going to be. Prior to that, in the in the paper world, we would give them a chart. They would size it. Um, they would do all that work themselves. Yeah. Okay, so you you became an erstwhile graphic designer as well as a, a publisher. Oh, dear friends, I became so many things. <laughs> 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 to prepare for this, I dug back into my memory and um, sequenced what happened in, in, in our <laughs> We converted graphics to computerized graphics first. There's a piece of this history I don't know. They chose a package to do this, and I found the history of it online, actually, called Telegraph. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we ran it on a Burroughs mainframe, and that had to do with the fact that the bank had chosen Burroughs as its mainframe provider instead of IBM. And I know that there was history behind that. I wasn't involved in it. And that mm -hmm. produced computerized graphs, business graphics, including when it's the publications. And then we moved into desktop publishing. And so you could bring a graphic in there from an electronic source. And I even know the package we used for the desktop publishing. I looked that up, too. Oh, nice. Interesting history. It was called FrameMaker. And I think it's still out there. It's had a rebirth. But it's a technical <laughs> publication package. It's got a steep learning curve. Yeah. <laughs> and it's used to produce a lot of software manuals. So, But it originated on the Unix platform. And so, among other things, I knew how to work on a Unix box. Nice. Well, let's go back even further because you were working on computers when they were the size of small buildings. Well, there's that. <laughs> you started on computers when they were doing the punch card system for programming. My son is referring to my awarded career as a computer programmer <laughs> because they wouldn't let me behind the fence to actually work on the computer itself. I, all I was allowed to do was program Fortran on cards. <laughs> oh. Yes, my sordid past, but that was college in the 70s. <laughs> So awesome. what else is there about 
desktop publishing. So we've discussed, you know, the fact that you had, you know, what you guys were doing in order to make all these financial books available for your for the various markets. Whose idea was it to take you guys from that style of publishing to the desktop digital publishing that, you know, we are all now freely using as a common source, like on Amazon and all those kind of things. And following that, why did the bank ultimately go along with it? I mean, I've dealt with the people there when you and dad were both working there. Was it easily seen the benefit of it? Or was there something else to be like, you know, why are we doing it this way? Now you are going to have to invite him to be a guest on the Um, The answer to your question is a global belief that automation makes things better. And I'm not going to try to refute that belief. (laughs) I, I do subscribe to it. The main benefit that was realized from the graphics automation was that we didn't need as many graphic designers and that may not sound like a benefit to everybody on this uh, podcast or everybody in the audience (laughs) but in business the driver is to reduce costs and Mm -hmm. I'm here to say that a lot of companies figured out that they reduced their staff before they really should have that and that learning these automated systems is a whole job unto itself so the first driver Mm -hmm. To do this was the belief that we would reduce the costs of staff. The truth is you just replace them with the cost of the automated systems. Uh, But the second driver was probably more important. As I mentioned earlier, there was a lot of need to make last minute changes. Data would change. Opinions would change. Developments in the markets would change. And one of the things that the economists we worked for were able to do was make a much cheaper, if you will, change at the last minute because it didn't have to be redone through all those cycles that we discussed. Somebody just got on the workstation, made the change, and there it was. And of course, all the pieces of that, the flow through to the printing house, was much faster, much more efficient, and much more accurate. You weren't actually changing the language. Nobody was handling the language. It was going through as it had begun. So it was more accurate. What would the time frame be then for, let's say, from having a complete manuscript in the physical version? How long would it take you guys to have a finished product versus in this digital platform when you had a completed manuscript? How long would it take you to have a finished product if you're also then going to include someone in Washington saying, no, I don't like that, change it. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be one of my bigger swags at this point because I don't remember the details. But I know that a revision could go through in a matter of minutes in the desktop publishing environment, whereas a revision in the manual environment could take more than a day. The review in Washington, I mean, you, you, you've got the two elements here. You've got the electrons moving at the speed of electrons. 
and you've got people who only move at the speed of people. So when you send something mm-hmm. to Washington to get it reviewed, the minimum is going to be overnight. And so then you get a, a revision from there and you make it. Did that answer your question? Yeah. You're looking at a change of five to 10 minutes versus a change of minimum 24 to 36 hours, potentially. Well, and adding on the manual process, it depended on how big the change is. If it affected only one page, then it wasn't such a big deal. But if it affected a flow from one page to the next, that could affect the layout of the book. And so, you know, multiply accordingly. In the previous edition, did you guys have, you know, changes made when you were already in the printing process where you had numbers of partially made material that then just had to be scrapped because the resources could not be reused? What I remember was one issue where a decision was made in Washington that resulted in pulling an entire article. Oh, wow. I remember one batch of books. And the next thing you're probably going to ask me is, what was a batch of books? And these things were mailed all over the country and all over the world. And I'm going to guess we printed, um, I want to say somewhere between twenty and 50,000 of them. Wow. Right. So, I mean... <laughs> so, I mean, the big thing I'm remembering, I mean, so I'm going to go back to my memories of being a child, you know, going with mom and dad to work. So for the audience members who don't know these things, the Federal Reserve Bank has the largest stash of gold in the world, I believe. More, There's more gold there than Fort Knox. Well, especially now, yeah. But so, like, I would get to go to work and... I would get to go down to the gold vault because, you know, mommy and daddy were important. Yay, me. But, you know, the other big thing is, like, the bank would have all these high-end diplomats and dignitaries who would have to come in to deal with these things. So, in my mind, with all this publishing talk, you know, I like giving the little extra tidbits there, but all this publishing talk, you guys are having to make these things that are not just for the u.s markets the u.s government but again you're making them for the russians you're making them for the chinese the japanese the english the germans the french so i'm also going to assume that you guys were probably making them in other languages as well no the journal was always published in english but you are reminding me that there was upon occasion an article that would have a reaction from a central bank in another country. And there would be a courtesy call to that country's central bank saying, hey, you know, we're going to publish this article about whatever. And just a heads up if there was going to be an opinion. These weren't, I mean, mean, you can look at the economic policy review today. It's available on the New York Fed's website at newyorkfed.org. These are PhD economists who work at the bank and write their opinions about economic policy matters and financial policy and monetary policy matters. So they're not like articles about today's movement in the stock market. You know, they're not that immediate. They're more longer term views. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've actually had to process some of those journals when working with the series division at the Library of Congress. So I've seen (laughs) some of the more recent editions of that. That's right. Yeah, one thing I wanted to go back to, because it's 
a little bit of a favorite memory is how it changed from doing manual layouts and handing them over to a printer for typesetting to doing the typesetting yourself on your desktop. And that was the choice of the font for the do. <laughs> and I learned something so important about the font selection business. We had a editorial publication senior staffer at the time who was in charge of selection of the font. And the font that was chosen was something called Garamond. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. You may be familiar with. And in those days, Garamond was not uh, the most available font. And as a matter of fact, it was kind of selective. And it meant that a lot of what we did in publishing that book was more difficult and a bit more costly than it would have been if we had selected, for example, Times New Roman. And it gave me a real appreciation (laughs) for how that artistic, visual influence works in the business world where you have to pay for every element of a choice like that. I'm afraid I'm a fairly practical person with not much of an eye for such things. And we had to go around some circles every once in a while because of good old Garamond. <laughs> it's a classic font. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Thankfully, most of the fonts are free nowadays. So. But, yeah. yeah. I remember learning once that it was like a huge deal when Apple first came out with a word processing program that had all these built-in fonts. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just like mm-hmm. mind-blowing yeah, that, that was one of Steve Jobs' big design things. He wanted, he went in and brought in these top designers and created all these fonts that were named for the cities where the designers were from. So there was Chicago and San Francisco and New York font. Huh. He did well with it. Does it still exist? Uh, Chicago still does. Yeah. Chicago's actually in Word. And Google uses Chicago, I believe. Yeah. I'm opening up Word right now because I want to look. Yep, go, <laughs> go for it. Well, now there are millions of fonts. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, I know for AS21, our logo was designed in Playfair Display, but Playfair Display is available on Google, but not many other places. But Georgia, which is everywhere, looks about right. the same. So we use Georgia for most things. Right. <laughs> I actually downloaded a PDF to give me the Lovecraftian font. Nice. So... You can't read it. Yeah. But, you know, it looks like you're writing, you know, like the Cthulhu Cthulhu mythos monsters that H.P. Lovecraft came up with. And I actually had a friend who was such a big Gerald Tolkien fan that he would buy every different version of The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings he would see if they were ha- used a different font <laughs> because of how the Elfish would be written. And he, he actually oh. was fluent in Elvish. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. So it's amazing the difference is fun. I'm looking at Microsoft Word. Chicago is not in here, but <sighs> I do see Geneva and Georgia. And I'm going to go down the list. Yeah. Nothing else that looks like the name of a place, but that's a cool bit of history. Yeah. Before Steve Jobs did that revolution, I, there were like six fonts then, but before that, there Monaco. were. There was just like one. Ameri- what's now known as American Typewriter was the standard font for so many oh, God. Uh, <laughs> it, this brings back dark a, days. Well, it brings back a seriously embarrassing memory, but I'll confess to it anyway. The other thing that we did after we did this 
At the time, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York was not on the internet. Right. <laughs> For good and reason. The economists wanted their work out there, like their academic fellows. And so we put a team together and put the bank on the internet. And our very first internet site had the spiral bound notebook pages as its format. Nice. Oh, Love it. <laughs> Skewer graphics. Yes. <laughs> it's a, it's a true fact. I'm horrified to admit. Oh, I love it. Great. And <laughs> Hey, we got out there. Absolutely. So I guess back to the topic at hand, what would you say was the most important or powerful thing you were involved with in terms of making one of these publications, print or digital? <laughs> My mind went two different ways. Um, <laughs> one of them, the more minor one, was being part of a process of producing a technical publication as opposed to a popular publication. And I remember what I would like to call the equation wars. They were the reason, equations were the reason that we chose FrameMaker because it was the only package at the time that had the capability to handle the level of mathematical equations that the economists were using. And equations, if you've ever looked at them with your typesetter's eye, are a nightmare. They're multi-level. They can occupy two and three lines with their brackets and then their subscripts and their superscripts. And never mind that you've got to have some rudimentary understanding of equation formatting to typeset them. So the, the work that went into that was enormous. And yet we were providing the service of making it possible for these scholars to get their work out there in the public, including their equations, so that their colleagues could verify, could understand how they reached their conclusions, could validate. So that was a strangely powerful, it was almost like underground magic, you know, that, that we could do that. Because when you see it on a printed page, you're like, oh, there's an equation, big deal. Well, it is a big deal. The other thing that came to mind, and I'm, I, I hope it fits your question, was what it was we were purveying to the public was such important stuff. Like I said in the beginning, you know, a wrong sentence. We were really vigilant about the words in the sentence that flip the meaning 180 degrees. Is or is not. Up or down. We had a we had a change we had to make once because somebody said up instead of down. Oops. <laughs> you know, interest rates are going up. Interest rates are going down. You pick. Sweet. <laughs> that's, 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 a, that's a big difference. <laughs> Yeah. The other thing that really struck me was the nuance. You know, they talked during Alan Greenspan's long terms as the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board about Greenspeak, which was what they called it when he would say the things he said. People would come away and say, what did he say? What did he mean by that? <laughs> uh, you know, I'll say it again. We had the power to move markets and we had to be very careful how we use that. So when you're laying out and publishing by hand versus laying out and publishing electronically, which one makes that better, makes accuracy better? I don't know. Uh, you can make mistakes or you can be super accurate either way. Well, I could tell you now desktop publishing begat the system that created the ability for e-journals 
to really take off. And for many of these magazines and journals and some of these top shelf ones like the Quarterly Review to go digital. At the Library of Congress, we have the Serial and Government Publication Division storage shelves. When I started on detail down there processing, it was three large rooms full of shelf after shelf, six shelves high shelving units with individual stacks of journals. As of this past year, they consolidated down to one room from three because of a combination of journals and magazines closing and the switch to electronic publishing. One of my first assignments was to work down this one aisle that was all one side. It was all from one publisher, economic reports from individual countries. It took us about six months to get through all of them. And once we were done, they completely consolidated, shifted the aisle away because all of them had switched to digital release. (laughs) And I do have to ask, when they were bringing about this switch over, was there any, it's been a bugaboo of corporate office since the 1970s, was the words paperless office being bandied about? So, yes, and... The other one of the other units that worked under my management was our library. We had a special library in economic and financial research, and I was constantly present to paper and paperless throughout my career in the support function. For our listening audience, many of whom I'm sure know this, but maybe some don't, we're talking about a couple different things here. To go from manual layout and professional typesetting to desktop publishing where layout and typesetting are all done in the business area by our own staff still produces the paper book. And we didn't go to the digital version of the quarterly review right away. I don't think we did it in the time of the quarterly review. The economic policy review, the current publication of the Federal Reserve, I actually should have gone and looked before the podcast, but everybody can go look, may still be available in paper, but I'm sure is now available in a digital version. But of course, the sort of interim digital version for everybody was PDFs. Right. Just take those pages, the same ones you're going to send to the printer produce them as a PDF and put them online, and then people have online availability. But that's not the same thing you're talking about. So digital publishing of publications is making it available in an online form, and maybe not at all in a paper form. Well, the way we got there was starting with the desktop publishing. We couldn't have created the electronic without your experience of the switch to creating it in an electronic Right. We're all in perfect agreement here what we're talking about. Absolutely. What your question brought up for me is I'm not going to be a complete dinosaur, only a partial one. But the notion of the cloud, thank you, my son. (laughs) (laughs) The notion of the cloud is not as new as everybody thinks. We had that kind of technology a long time ago. But what I worry about with a cloud is that it lulls people into thinking that all of that digital information is safe. And the library function in me says, 
what happens if we lose the digital versions of these things? We won't have our own history. Yep. And I know people worry yep. about that, like Paul's that on. Is, that's a worry I have too. <laughs> well, just to be able to have a really fun conversation, just to tweak off of that, after September 11th happened, you got to join the really fun discussion groups of contingency planning for nuclear attack, bioweapon attack, biochemical attack, terror attack, military invasion of, you know, the first world from someone else. And I, you got to have all that kind of fun, too. So I'm sure, I'm sure those kind of discussions took place. If the Russians dropped a EMP off in Washington, D.C., can we save all of this material? If the British decide to take back the colonies and they drop a anthrax bomb in Chicago, you know, whatever happens, happens. You know, how do we deal with these things? <laughs> you know the you British have... <laughs> coming back for their colonies. You know it. Such a vivid imagination. Where did you I'm get that? I'm telling you. Well, you know, there's an apple in a tree metaphor here. <laughs> <laughs> now, everyone I... knows where I get it from. <laughs> I can tell you one thing, that in all of the contingency planning, war games, disaster preparedness exercises, and other such things I did, there was always the declaration of what's essential and what's non-essential. And the printing of the publication, I'm sad to tell you, was delegated non-essential. Yeah. But yeah. I think the Publications large... in general, or just you? Or just your department? Well everything. The only thing that would get priority would be banking regulation bulletins that had to go out regarding, and even those would be vastly narrowed down from the everyday publication of banking bulletins to those that pertain to the emergency at hand. So during what Paul referenced, the time of the attack on the World Trade Center, we were a center for you know, how to get through that for the financial district and, and the world, really. And so the things that had to be distributed probably weren't even printed on paper at that point. They were, would be distributed electronically anyway. It's an interesting discussion. We've, we've gone from publishing a regular economic research journal to how to handle a terror attack. <laughs> It's amazing how many conversations end up on them. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to our podcast. Yes. <laughs> well, we've been keeping you busy for several minutes now, Barbara. Thank you so much for joining us. Any final thoughts from anyone before we sign off? Paul, did we surprise you well enough? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't do it again. <laughs> did you... I don't like surprises. <laughs> Did you ever think that we'd ha we'd have your mom on? No. Did you ever think that, <laughs> that we'd have your mom on? Well, more specifically, that we'd have your mom on for a reason other than the fact that she's your mom. No. <laughs> now I'm trying to think of anyone else I know who might have a connection to the publishing industry. Be like, who the hell is do I know and how do I get rid of them? <laughs> <laughs> who do I have to well, knock off? If if you're done railing against your fate. <laughs> <laughs> may, I, may I just say thank you it's been quite a while since I did this work and it's one of the 
prouder points of my career at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and I really appreciate the opportunity to share it with you. So thank you all. Thank you so much, Barbara, for coming. Well, thank on. you for joining thank us. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> I, I have to say, this has been a, a fantastic discussion uh, and a good back and forth from all of us, and I'm I'm glad that uh, it worked out so well. So thank you so much for you know sharing some of your precious time with us today, and of course. We have to thank you for your son, because we know you're the one who did all the hard work. So. You're more than welcome on all camps. <laughs> <sighs> Just like, keep him. He's your problem now. Yeah. <laughs> give everyone dirty looks. Okay, this has been Chapter 35 of the Publish Me Podcast, The Birth of Digital Publishing, with our guest, Barbara Dickinson. Remember to keep up with us on Podomatic, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, TuneIn, and our home on the web, audio.as21.com. You can reach out to us on Twitter at Publish Podcast, Facebook.com slash Publish Podcast, and email us, Publish Podcast at as21.com. Next month, Chapter 36, we'll be discussing world building with our guest, independent author Bharat Krishnan, author of the fantasy book Oasis. So thank you again, Barbara, for joining us. For AS21 Media, I am Keith F. Shelvin. I'm Rana Gaynor. And I am Paul Dickinson Russell. Remember, everyone, where there are thoughts and ideas, there are stories. We'll see you next month. Copyright 2018, AS21 Media, LLC. All rights reserved. AS21 Media. What do you want your story to be?